0: Hi there. My name is David Svikalman and you're listening to the very first, fresh, out-of-the-box episode of Sermon Slam. Sermon Slam is a poetry slam, but it's for sermons, for stories, for poems, for plays, for anything else that doesn't take too long to tell. Each Sermon Slam event focuses around a Jewish theme, and some of each night's performances are posted online. The theme for our very first evening was Hanukkah, and the event was hosted at Lovers and Mad Men Cafe in West Philadelphia. So for this episode, we've brought you three performances from that evening. So, without any further ado, let's begin. First up is Josh Cooper. Josh gave a short and unconventional sermon about his ambivalent relationship towards this holiday and the culture that surrounds it. Here's Josh. There is a story told in the book of Maccabees about a heroic warrior named Eleazar. Eleazar valiantly
1: plunged his sword into the belly of the enemy elephant guaranteeing his own death under the crushing weight of the fallen beast and winning an eternal emotional victory. There is a story told in the scroll of Antiochus about a warrior named Eleazar. Eleazar fought the elephants, and yes, he fell in battle, but no, there was no glory. His body was found hours later drowned in elephant poop. My friends, the story of Eleazar is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the story of Eleazar. They are one and the same. They both look nice at first, but when you look again, you see they're full of shit. <laughs> Religion is about seeing the divine face to face. To see God is spiritual ecstasy, but to see God is no small task. And so the Torah gave us the laws. The Torah gave us Sukkot. It's normative and it's artificial, but it lets us see God from only one step away. But then once upon a time there was a rebellion and the Maccabees couldn't celebrate Sukkot. So they celebrated their eight days a little late, and so we're another step removed. But then the rabbis, under Roman rule, didn't want the Jews to think like soldiers, so they made up this idea of oil lasting eight nights and called it Hanukkah. A story, by the way, and I'm sorry to burst your bubble, that doesn't appear anywhere in the books of Maccabees, Antiochus, or Josephus Flavius. And with another lie, we've taken a third step back. But we won't stop there, because later we're told that it suffices to use wax and wicks instead of real olive oil, a surefire guarantee that we'll forget the made-up memory we're trying to preserve. And we're another step gone. And then, because we are here in America, for now here in America, we can't We can't even mark how a neskadol hayah Po. no, no, neskadol hayah sham, the great miracle happened there, the great miracle happened somewhere far away, out of sight and out of mind, five steps removed. But then, Hanukkah happened around the same time as this little thing called Christmas. And so it's the Jewish Christmas. Let me make something clear, friends. Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christmas. Hanukkah is not about presents, and Hanukkah Harry is a terrible guy. That's six. And today, I read a blog entry about how we should spell Hanukkah CH or H or H with a dot. How many Ns? How many Ks? Should you end with an A or should you end with the AH? Shut up! Because while I'm trying to see God, you're arguing about how to misspell a transliteration of nothing. And that's seven steps removed from the divine. And I'm tempted to think of number eight. I'm tempted to find eight eight layers of BS and permanently put this holiday to shame. And yet, I can't. I won't. Because somehow, even this far away from Hashem, I see a family lighting a candle. I see a grandmother hugging her grandson. I see Jews having their one Jewish experience all year. I hear songs, I enjoy tastes, and I remember. Somehow, even though I'm so far away from God, God is so close to me. Marabuma Asacha Dunai, how wondrous are your creations, Lord. This holiday has gone so far from you, and yet it brings us so close to you. I won't pretend it makes sense, but I will light my candle, eat my sufganiyot, unwrap my presents, and say Chag Sameach because it's Hanukkah.
0: That was Josh Cooper. This evening was made possible in part by Hadar campus scholars at the University of Pennsylvania who just so happened to be my wife and myself. Hadar Campus Scholars is a project of Machon Hadar, a non-denominational egalitarian yeshiva in Manhattan. Called students are hungry for a robust and meaningful Judaism that lives in the space between denominations and is beholden only to God, Torah, and Israel. Through our work at Penn, we strive to model that Judaism in our home and to create programs on campus which both challenge students' ideologies and promote Hadar's values as part of a lifelong religious commitment. For more information about the other programs that Mechon Hadar runs, including its Winter College Learning Seminar and Summer programs, visit mechonhadar.org. Next up, a story by Ilan Kitterman about miracles and the many unexpected forms that miracles can take. Ilan only gets around to talking about Hanukkah at the very end, so make sure to pay attention all the way through. Here's Ilan getting introduced.
2: When I was 16, I walked through the wilderness. No, that is not a metaphor. I opened my eyes and found myself in the middle of a desert. I couldn't know this for sure, of course, because I was surrounded only by a useless darkness. Couldn't even see the ground beneath my feet. For all I knew, I was falling. But I went to sleep the night before in a desert, and personal experience has always told me that going to sleep in a desert is a surefire way to wake up in one. Now, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of durations, but you have to understand that there's no such thing as time when you're only mostly certain that you aren't dreaming and you're standing on sand that you cannot see and you're lonely, which is scary because it means that what you call light pollution is really temporal pollution. For three minutes, I did nothing. I was paralyzed, imprisoned by confusion and nanometer-tall dirt fences. It was only then that I realized that I should probably make my way back to camp, And it was only then that I realized that, thank God, I didn't just sleepwalk off a cliff. There are cliffs everywhere, and oh my God, stop walking. You can't see anything, for example, cliffs. You're no better off now than when you were asleep. And it was only then that I remembered the session from the night before, led by our hilariously Israeli guide, about how many scorpions there were beyond our camp. And don't go there except to make pee. And if you... (laughs) And if you go, go with friend and flashlight, because if you are stung, poof, dead within the hour. I wish that I had paid attention to how, if possible, to prevent assassination by scorpion. And I wish that I could Google how, if possible, to prevent assassination by scorpion. But there is no Google in the desert. And I doubt that would have been very helpful, because I Google now because as I google now, all of the suggestions involve black lights and are you kidding me and am I expected to go to sleep every night with a black light in my pocket just in case I sleepwalk and wake up within assassination distance of a scorpion. (laughs) This is how my nighttime logic calculated my options. One, try to walk back to camp. 80% chance I walk up a cliff and die. 10% chance I walk into a scorpion and die. 5% chance I walk in the opposite direction of camp and die a day later of frostbite. 3% chance I walk in the opposite direction of camp and die two days later of dehydration. 2% chance I make it back to camp alive. Two, sit down and wait until morning. 90% chance I'm stung by a scorpion and die. 8% chance I'm stung by a swarm of scorpions and die. 2% chance I'm stung by a non-poisonous scorpion and live, but then die because ouch. 3. Stay standing. All of the above statistics are mitigated by an astonishing 2%, which means 2% chance I am not stung by a scorpion. 2% chance I am stumbled upon in the morning by a Bedouin woman, unconscious but vertical. 2% chance she takes me in and thaws me out. 2% chance we fall in love on that day in that tent over soup. 2% chance we are married under the hover stars and we raise children together and sometimes they play with the camels and we realize that we are happy. Two percent chance I get to an old age and contract desert typhoid and die. It took me ten minutes of silent calculation to recall the existence of vocal cords. It took me another two to prove it. I was certain that whatever sound I was about to make would not be mine, that it would be born of the acoustics of empty. My first word was tremendously alienating, tremendously inaudible. And for some reason, it wasn't help. It wasn't a name, just Hello. And once it came out of me, it was as if it was the only word I knew. For one hour, I spoke it with increasing volume. Hello, hello, hello. It was like the networking event from hell. But all of my peers were scorpions and not a single one even asked me my name. By the end of that hour, the voice that I had spent so much time insisting existed was gone, and the hope that I had spent so much time insisting did not exist remained gone, and I was sure that what powered the light that at last turned on, 20 yards from where I was standing, was not hello, but the absence of goodbye. I walked towards that light, and the girl who bore it made me tea over fired dry wood. And even though she was my camp counselor, and I could have gotten her fired, she held me for an hour until I stopped shaking. The next morning when I awoke, the bottom of my socks were completely white. I would have taken this as a sign that I had dreamt the whole thing, but for the conversation that I heard nearby, who the hell was that crazy guy screaming in Arabic last night? <laughs> yeah, it was so freaking annoying. And I had to say, that was me. I'm sorry if I disturbed you. If I had to make a lifelong humankind game of taboo, these are the things that would be indexed on its only card. One. I added raisins to that perfectly good food item for you. Two, I'm sorry if I disturbed you. We live in a world in which we apologize for disturbing, as if it would all be better if the entire human race could just stand perfectly still, equally distant, as if we are all scorpions, all poisonous, and if I'm not careful with where I put my tail, it might sting you, might graze your salad. I'm sorry that my tail grazed your salad. I'm sorry that you mistook my venom to be accidental. I'm sorry that the chemical makeup of my venom is the same as that of your name. I'm sorry that I don't remember her name. I'm sorry that I said hello and not help. But let me help you understand. Every time someone says hello, it is a cry for help. Every time someone wakes up, it is a cry for help. Every time someone helps, it is a cry for help. Every time someone lights a candle, it is cr- a cry for help. What if, the, what if the miracle was not that she turned on a light, but that I saw it? What if the miracle was not that I was 20 yards away from humans, but that for eight nights we still care about the feeling of wax on our fingers? What if the miracle was not that she spent an hour holding me, making me feel safe, but that I spent an hour shaking her, making her feel shaken? Thank you.
0: That was Elon Kitterman, and if you don't mind, I'll just take another quick break to tell you about our evening's other sponsor, This episode of Sermon Slam was made possible by a Make It Happen microgrant. Make It Happen is a global initiative of the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Philanthropic Network. For more information, visit makeithappen.schusterman.org. Our third and final piece is a poem from Annie Lewis. Annie's poem talks about the Hanukkah miracle, where a single jar of oil lasted for seven days. In her poem, Annie talks about the objects in our lives— which we keep long after they've stopped being useful and the things which truly stay with us forever.
3: All right, next up Annie Lewis. This is a poem called Chanukat Bait A Housewarming. When we first moved to Philly, we sign up for Verizon Fios to follow the endless brick road of cable programming. In the staggered showstones, I find hoarders buried alive. I click through. Each time I see it in the lineup, I press OK, because I can barely watch, but I certainly can't look away. As warriors push down doors, armed with masks, and latex and thick black trash bags. I wince as they clear hills of holy rubble. Yogurt cups, jelly jars, empty bottles of canola oil, chipped porcelain cherubs, torn khakis, piles of opened envelopes that once were trees, pillars of magazines, Bins of stuffed animals. No, real animals. Some that died being saved. All of these treasures for a rainy day, for a time of need. I start to wonder, how long has it been since I last cleaned out my fridge? How long does feta last? Then a commercial cuts in to convince me that if I ever want to be happy, I need to buy a can of Del Monte green beans. (laughs) After the break, psychologists, estranged children, and the ghosts of abusive parents are summoned. I hold my breath. Here's hoping that beneath the debris, there is a clearing, a place where sky can come through. And one last drop of something that fills us up. One last drop of something that fills us up and takes up no space. One last drop of something that takes up no space and goes on forever.
0: Annie Lewis. Oh, thank you. Our Did fabulous MC for the evening was Lizzie Burroughs. Thanks as well to Yael Kalman, Elon Kitterman, Annie Lewis, and Michal Richardson. Sermon Slam is a project of Open Quorum, dedicated to creating, curating, and distributing Jewish public media. If you like the show or want to bring it to your city, send an email to info at openquorum.org or go to our website, sermonslam.openquorum.org. The next Sermon Slam will be in New York City on January 22nd. If that excites you and you want to be part of it, seriously, let us know right now. My name is Davids V. Kalman. Thanks for listening to our very first episode, and stay tuned for more.